Thank you for listening in to the King's Chapel podcast. We hope this message is a blessing to you. Please stay tuned after the message for more information about King's Chapel. Well, it was good to hear a few moments ago to hear David's testimony. And there's one thing that's really strange um, about the Christian experience when it comes to testimonies. And it's this thing that, that we pray and we pray with expectation. And when God answers, we are shocked, right? <laughs> We're like, can you believe what he did? I, know, I mean, it just like it, 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 it totally blows us away. So, you know, we hear his testimony from David about him um, on a Sunday right here. Us, you know, we pray for his healing and, and uh, we come to find out that God actually did it. And we're like, wow. What's good is that this has a biblical precedent. We are not uh, on our own when it comes to praying for something and then being surprised when God answers. So if you have your Bible, we're going to start this morning in Acts chapter 12. Acts 12. And this is a story after um, Peter had been arrested, if you remember the story. Peter had been arrested, had been put into prison. Um, The church began to pray for him, for his deliverance and for his release. An angel shows up, opens up the prison gates. Peter walks out. Peter and the angel are walking down the street. The angel leaves, and all of a sudden Peter is there and realizes that all of this was real life, um, that he had been miraculously set free, delivered from an actual, physical, locked-up, bars-and-gates prison. And here's what happens. Acts chapter 12, we'll pick up at verse number 12. And when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. This is probably the Mark that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Where many people had gathered and were praying. And Peter knocked on the outer entrance And a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed. (laughs) I love that. This this is how you know the Bible is not made up, uh, because you wouldn't make this kind of stuff up. You you wouldn't put the name of the servant girl in if you were just making it up, for one, culturally. But for two, I mean, this just, like, it totally makes sense, though. She was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, They're gathered here at the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, praying, presumably praying for Peter's release from prison, praying for his deliverance, right? They're praying for Peter. And Rhoda comes and says to them, Peter is here. Next. (laughs) You're out of your mind, they told her. This is like so relatable. Um, Like we, we get where this is coming from. And when she kept in, so like she had to like keep pressing this. Like they didn't just not believe her and then go check anyway. They're not even going to go to the door. But when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, well, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and they were astonished. And Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. This is an incredible encounter that happens. 
As they're praying, Peter is delivered. And what I wonder if there's a lot of things that we could focus in, in here on about God's power to deliver in prayer, about the unity of the believers, about how our faith is at best imperfect. Lord, you know, increase my faith that even them, they had to be, they were praying and were still having a hard time grasping what God was doing. But I want to take a little bit different angle this morning as we look at a few different encounters throughout the book of Acts. And what we're going to see is this, is that many of the major events where God moved in miraculous and surprising ways throughout the book of Acts happened in people's homes. Happened in the home. In fact, we, we see here, this happened in the home, this prayer meeting happened in the home of Mary. And I think that we as the church, that our homes have become our most underutilized asset in our kingdom work. I think our, our actual physical houses and the emotion and the relationship and everything attached to them have become our most underutilized asset. We, we like to meet in churches, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we like to meet at restaurants or coffee shops, and there's nothing wrong with that. But there seems to be something about our homes, as we look at the book of Acts. So if you turn over to chapter 2, you could turn there with me. I want you to, I want you to notice something else. This is the end of Acts chapter 2. As kind of a summary statement, here's how, how Luke wraps up the, the ascension, the, the day of Pentecost, the people being saved. This is how he wraps up the very earliest stages of the fledgling church. He says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. So here's what you see. They didn't give up meeting in the, the religious, the, the temple courts, the religious structure. You could look at it, you could, you could almost discount this whole sermon and say, well, you know, homes were all that they had. That was just, you know, that was just what they did. Don't make such a big deal about homes. But they did continue to meet in the temple courts. They would gather together there. But they also, on a regular basis, gathered in homes for teaching, for fellowship, for meals, and for prayer. This was the normal rhythm of the early church. In fact, think about it. Oh, oh sorry. They broke, they broke bread together in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They had the temple, and they had homes, and they met there, and they fellowshiped, and they shared together. We know that uh, the day of Pentecost, think about this, 
on the day of Pentecost, they had come back from the Mount of Olives where Jesus had assembled, had ascended, had come back to Jerusalem. And look at what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 13. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. The upper room on the day of Pentecost was at somebody's house. Pentecost happened in a home. Not just that. You think about Peter and his vision of the sheet, where where he saw the vision of the sheet let down by four corners with all kinds of, of animals, both clean and unclean. And it's where God spoke to Peter and said, Peter, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. And he was calling Peter out of his Jewish world to begin the Gentile mission. We think about Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, but it began with Peter and a vision from God. And where did that vision happen? On a rooftop at a house of a man named Simon the Tanner. In fact, when when the people from Cornelius' house come and they get Peter and they take him to, uh, to Cornelius' house and the, whole, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles for the first time, this outpouring happens where? At Cornelius' house. The Spirit outpouring on the Gentiles. Peter or, or Paul then continues the Gentile mission. And he, you remember the story. One day he meets a, a woman named Lydia out of, by the river and he shares the gospel with her. And she believes. And she says, come stay at my house. And at first, for whatever reason, they're reluctant. And she says to them, if you consider me a believer, then come stay at my house. Now, if you're Paul and Silas, you have two options. You have either to take take her up on her invitation and affirm her entrance into the kingdom, or risk alienate her and alienate her altogether. For Lydia, Paul and Silas coming into her home was confirmation that she was in the kingdom of God, was proof of her conversion. All of these things, and we could go on and on and on about all of the things that God did throughout the book of Acts in people's homes. Now, Are homes magical? Is there something mystical or mysterious about meeting in homes? It's like, you know, well, if we gather in homes, God will, you know, he'll show up and he'll do something. But if we're at a church or a coffee shop or at at the campgrounds or at a hotel convention center, then, you know, that's all. Is there something magical about homes? Well, we know it's not the case. So what's going on? I think God's moving in homes is an indicator of the personal closeness of the early church. It's an indicator of their fellowship, of their love, of their unity, that they shared even their homes. See, to be in someone's home is to be involved in their life. When I invite you into my home and you invite me into your home, there is something intensely personal that's going on. You know someone on a much deeper level, on a much more personal level, that you just can't experience any other way. See, the issue is not about 
a house. The issue is about the relationships. And by meeting together in homes, and yes, they, they had limited options back then, I get all that, but by meeting in homes, it reinforced these relationships, that they were a part of each other's lives. See, to be a Christian is to be involved in the lives of other believers. To be a Christian is to be a part of a community. To use it in scripture, scriptural terms, a people. That God is, even in the New Testament, He is not saving so much individuals as He is gathering a people, a, a collection, a group, a people to be kings and priests, a people to bring to, uh, unto God. This is what God is doing. He is putting together for Himself a people and someone who is individually a Christian, but not a part of the people of God, well, that's not what God intended for us. It's not what He intended for us. To be a Christian is, is to be a part of a body. And the eyes can't say to the hand, I don't need you. And the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. We are a body. And one of the ways that that is expressed is when we get together. When we do things together, when we pray together, when we meet together like we do here, and when we meet in homes, when we go out together for fellowship and for fun, to be a Christian is to be involved in the lives of other believers. So, next. So, why do we resist? Why is there this pull for me to do my walk with God my way and you're to do your walk with God that way? In too many, the pull is this. The pull is to, instead of be the church, the pull is to go to church, isn't it? That church is something that I go to. And I have these other people that I go to church with. And I go and I, and I watch the service. And I go and I, and I go home and you know, that person over there, I don't know much about them, but, but I know that we go to church together. And that's, that's the pull that all of us have. And it's all, not just in the church. It's, you, know, you look at our society and our culture. We build fences around our yards. and I've got fences and I praise God for them. Um, you know, we, we have automatic garage door openers. You know, I pull in my driveway, I hit my garage button, my, my vehicle goes in there, the door closes, and the neighbors don't even see me out in the driveway. I mean, it's glorious, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is how we live. And this is the pull. So why do we, why do we have this happen? It's, you understand how this is. Someone invites you to over to their home or out to eat or something like that, and at first you think to yourself, man, I am too busy and I'm too tired, and I know that would be fun, but I'll just, I'll just stay home. And then you go out and you enjoy the evening, and you're like, that was fun. I, you know, we, every, we should get together with them more often. And then you, get, and then, then you, go, you get invited, and you're like, man, I'm so tired. And this is, this is, this is the pull. Our pull is to disconnect and separate. Part of that, I think, is we, we as a culture wear busyness as a badge of honor. And I'm, I'll hold up my hand on that one too. By, by the way, 
The next one of you that call, when you call me, um, if, if you begin the, the statement with, um, Matt, so much thanks for taking my call. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean to bother you. I know you're busy. I'll probably just hang up on you because I'm, I'm sick of that. I'm sick of people saying that. No, 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 don't, don't do that. We're all busy. We're all busy. But there's also this element of, I don't want to interfere. I don't want to stick my nose in somebody else's business. I don't want to interrupt their, their life. I know that they're busy. I know they got kids. I know they got a family. I know they got a job. I know they got... And I, I, just, I, I don't want to stick my nose into a place that it doesn't belong. And if there is a legitimate reason that we resist, I think this is probably the most common, is that we don't want to butt into somebody else's life. It's none of my business. Let them do their thing. I'll do my thing. I want you to look at something that Paul says, he addresses. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, picking up at verse number 11. He's talking about, about widows in particular and how the church is supposed to, like the, the mechanics of how they are to care for widows. And he talks about older widows and he talks about younger widows. So here's the part about the younger widows. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, a list of... Um, of aid, of helping them, of benevolence. So, so the idea was if there was a widow in the church, the church was supposed to be social security for them. It was supposed to, the church, they didn't have anybody else, the church was going to take care of them. And he says, make sure they're over 60. If they're under 60, don't put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they will want to marry. Continue. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle. Remember that word there. They get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, and they not only do, or, and not only do they become idlers, but they also, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. So Paul's saying this, in your heart, to help out these younger widows, you've, you've, in fact, you've hurt some of them, and some of them have turned away from the faith because they had too much time on their hands and they became busybodies. And isn't that, sometimes when we talk about, you know, being in a group or being in a relationship with other Christians or or. or all of these things, we're like, I don't want to be a busybody. I don't want to be sticking my nose into other people's business. I don't want to do that. So how do I become involved in the lives of others without becoming a busybody, without becoming nosy, without pressing myself in too far? Now, I want you to look at one more. There's one more place that Paul uses this word busybody, and it's in uh, 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to go through this pretty quickly. I want you to catch the big picture. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, 
not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down, to earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing, this is the opposite, never, opposite of idleness, never tire of doing what is good. So how do we get involved in the lives of other people within the family of God without becoming a busybody? See, in, the epi- in this, both of these epistles, did you notice this? Let's go to the next one. Being a busybody is connected to idleness. It's connected to having too much time on your hands, nosing your way into someone else's business. Because of boredom, busybodies get involved in people's lives for entertainment. We have, we have a whole uh, television networks and stations devoted to busybodiness, right? Let's, let's be entertained by, the, by noting ourselves into the lives of other people and, and paparazzis and, and Twitter and all of these things that are happening because we, we are a nation, a culture, a people of busybodies in our boredom. We get into people's lives for entertainment value, and I think that's what's going on in both of these cases, both in 1 Timothy and in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is saying, you know what? When you don't have enough to do, you get involved in people's lives in the wrong way, not to be helpful or constructive, but out of boredom, out of curiosity, for entertainment's sake. And as we talk about being a people, following in the steps that Jesus has laid out for it, as being uh, in one another's lives, connected a church body, not a group of individuals who happen to attend church in the same building and in the same room. We've got to be careful that our desire to be in one another's lives is not simply out of curiosity, for entertainment's sake, and out of boredom. In fact, next. Never be afraid to get involved in order to help and to pray. See, this is the opposite. If we're going to get involved in people's lives, which we need to, which is what the early church did, it has to be coming from the right motive, from the right heart. And we can't just step back and say, well, you know, and, and, and we're all guilty of this. Knowing somebody is in a hard situation and, and say to ourselves, well, if they need anything, they'll let me know. Or knowing somebody is in a difficult situation and saying to ourselves, well, that's none of my business. If your business is just to satisfy your curiosity, you're right. But if your desire, knowing that they're in a difficult situation, is to help and to pray, be a member of the body who is willing to take a risk to get involved in the lives of other believers out of love in order to help and to pray. This is who God has called us to be. We live life 
together. We serve God together. And are, are, are life groups the only way to do that? No, certainly not. But it's a great way. I know just yesterday there were, there were a couple of different groups of King's Chapel people who uh, got together and did just hung out and did some things together, just had a good time. The only, life groups are not the only way to get there. But we can't be afraid to get involved in people's lives to help or to pray. The church is a body. I can't love you if I don't know you. You can't love me if you don't know me. We can't serve one another and help one another if we don't know what's going on, if we don't spend time together. What did we see in Acts chapter 2? They came together for the apostles' teaching, for fellowship, for breaking of bread, and for prayer. They did a lot of different things. It wasn't just to come together to pray that they did that. It wasn't just, for, it wasn't just a fellowship, but they did that. It wasn't just for teaching and discipleship, but they did that. It wasn't just for meals, but they did that. They came and they were together. My challenge is this, is that King's Chapel would be a place where and continue to be a place that we are a body We are connected. We need one another. We serve one another. We love one another. That it doesn't become a place of people who attend church together, but a body. Thanks again for checking out this week's message. If you are interested in finding out more about King's Chapel, please visit our website at kingschapel.church. There you can find service times and more ways to connect with us. You can also follow us on social media at King's Chapel SGF. We look forward to seeing you soon.